people. Like I was stepping out in the field knowing I deserve to be here. I know exactly what I'm doing. I have complete the complete confidence of all my teammates, complete confidence of the coach, um, and complete confidence I'm going to play well. Like that, that was a journey. Like the, the way I can be the best possible team player for you, Brian, is if I do my job incredibly well. Because if I do my job incredibly well, I'm going to make you look good. And the only way I can do my job incredibly well is by being selfish and take what I taking what I need to be successful. He knows what he needs to be successful. He's demanding it. And then you go and deliver on that. People are like, okay, you start to get um, credibility with your coaches and peers. Please don't sit back and watch. Please come in and make us better from day one. Uh, just because you're the new person doesn't mean you need to be the silent person. Uh, we hired you for a reason. Hello and welcome to the Brian Moyla podcast. I'm your host, Brian Moylet, former Irish age grade international rugby player turned high performance mindset coach. Each week on this podcast, I bring you an interesting person or message to help you discover how to be happier, more fulfilled and more successful. My new book, The Book on How You Become a Pro Rugby Player is available now on Amazon and Audible with links in the show notes. If you love this podcast, please send on some friends. You can subscribe on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify and can also leave five-star reviews there. Thanks, Emil, for spending some time with me today. Now let's get into it. I'm with Kevin McLaughlin, former Leinster, Ireland, international rugby player now, VP Partnership Success at Kitmet Labs. So thanks for jumping on, Kevin. And first up, like we were chatting before, I'm interested in the data and all that side of performance. But chat to me about what Kitman Labs do, first of all. Yeah. Hi, Brian, and thanks a million for having me on. So delighted to, to be on this and really enjoyed your other podcast. So great opportunity. Um, in terms of Kitman Labs, we are a hugely ambitious company and group of people. Uh, 210 people across the globe now started off as a small nucleus of three or four people in Dublin. Um, the company was actually founded in Leinster Rugby, where I was a player. And I was one of the guinea pig, uh, guinea pigs who Stephen Smith, who is head of injury rehabilitation in Leinster, tested the Kitman platform out on. So I remember entering, to the, entering data into the very first basic forms that he was creating whilst he was in Leinster. Um, and it's grown from that nucleus. I was so impressed at the time that I actually was an angel investor along with some other uh, uh, players who were in there at the time, like, like Jamie Heaslip. And the company has gone from strength to strength and grown over the last number of years um, to, like I said, a, a massive sort of global entity at this point with you know 50 staff in the US, um, 100 odd staff in Ireland, people all over Europe, people in APAC, et cetera. So that's been a really, really exciting journey. But it's worth calling out that since Stephen started the company, when he was sitting down with Michael Checa trying to review data back in whatever it was, 2008, 2009, on our, on our journey towards winning our first Heineken Cup, it's always been about outcomes. And I think you'll hear lots about, oh, well, you see those packs on the back of jerseys and all that data, and it's very data-driven, and you know everyone's wearing watches and rings and just data coming from everywhere. Isn't that amazing? I think what Stephen found was he, Leinster was the first team in the Northern Hemisphere to collect um, uh, GPS data. That's of all sports. And 
Stephen expected when he started collecting GPS data was very different to what he found. What he found was that having lots and lots of data wasn't actually enabling better decisions. It was creating a lot of friction between staff because everyone had an opinion of what the data meant. <clears throat> everyone was coming at it from different perspectives and different job roles had different pressure points. So the physio wanted to protect the athletes, the SNC coaches wanted to push them on, the coaches wanted to push them on. You had this constant tension, everyone interpreting the data differently and actually decisions were grinding to a halt rather than being improved. So he decided there has to be a better way. At the end of the day, we're all here to help Lancer win a Heigen Cup, make the players better. So we went to the market, uh, went across the entire globe looking for a company that was able to harness the data to drive better decision-making, couldn't find anyone, so went about building it himself. So from the beginning, it's been about how can I sit down with a coach like you or like Michael Cheka um, and actually utilize data to drive the outcomes that matter, talent development, performance on the pitch, health, um, the things that are actually going to, to make the boat faster using, using a different phrase. So that outcome has never changed. I think our ambition and our growth and our, our trajectory has changed a lot in the last 10 years. It's been hugely exciting because when Stephen kind of painted out that vision to me, uh, when he was pitching to me when I was still a player and asking me to put some of my money into it, um, he was talking about, you know, when we, when we get to the right place from a product perspective, I believe that we will own this market. And we are very close to owning the market now in terms of some of the, the biggest leagues in the world, like the Premier League, um, uh, MLS are now like working with us um, and want to use us to help transform their data into insights that actually uh, enable the outcomes that matter for them. Cool. So is it a case that you find out what the kind of end goal for the player and you're working across different sports, you know, whether the player, you want to get the player, you know, faster, fitter, stronger. And then from there, all the data that feeds in, you know, what data to feed in or you know what you want from each area. Yeah. So I think it really depends on a per organization, per sport perspective. Um, and what, I think what we have found in every single environment is the teams, the athletes, the goals within those teams are unique. So you might come into a team like um, uh, Bournemouth, right? And they might say, our only goal is to survive in the Premier League. Here's, here, here's sort of where we're at. Here's the, the number of points we need to achieve. Here's the number of goals we need to score. And everything we'd be doing then is connecting data back to those outcomes to help them achieve what they need to achieve. You're going into Chelsea, on the other hand, saying we're sitting 11th or whatever they are right now. We should be winning the league or minimum achieving top four. Because like all our financial health, everything links back to top four in Premier League. Okay, so what are the things that the top four teams are doing? How can we replicate that? What is the level of health you need to need? So start with the outcomes that the organization needs to achieve. And then start looking at how strong do the players need to be? What level of availability do they need to have? What level of technical prowess do they need to have? Right down to even who is the manager that can allow them to play the type of game that they need to play. Uh, we ran an analysis recently uh, for a large English team to help them find their next manager. Basically, by looking at all the data, uh, historical data from managers over the last 10 years, assessing the different playing patterns, assessing the different formations that are used, 
assessing uh you know the types of players that they need based on the existing squad within that particular team uh, to help them build a shortlist and they'll ultimately use data to help them pick their next manager so it really is strategic all the way to all the way through to what should Raheem Sterling be doing on the field today you know from a day-to-day -day tactical thing and data in our opinion should be part of that journey the whole way through well, wow, that's really cool. So it's kind of bespoke for each team you go in with. Yeah, so I think there are elements that are bespoke. And what we've done is developed a platform that's configurable on a per team basis. So it doesn't matter what team it is, we could roll the, the platform or the software out within a, within a day or two. And then what they can do is they can configure it under the bonnet themselves uh, with our support based on their requirements, the data they want to collect, the type of game they want to play, the type of injuries they have. So it'll start with the same base platform. And then over time, they can configure it out based on their requirements, the insights they need and decisions they need to make to, to make the organization better. Cool. And that's something I heard when you were saying there about uh, hiring the manager using data to understand what kind of manager, what manager would be best. That's really interesting. I heard something before how with like premier league like managers come in every six months or a year and it's just constant chop and change and for the amount of money that goes into it that's obviously or pretty obvious not the best way to be doing things because they looked at different teams and there were like so of the play one of one playing squad players have been signed by like seven managers so like all different ways of playing all different ideas yeah. and and it's like it makes the outside looking in it's just like that makes no sense so they're saying that it could and should move to a you'll have a like in rugby a, a dor or a director of football and then that'll be the number one person and then they'll hire kind of a head coach or a manager beneath that and a team beneath that in the future yeah and a lot a lot of teams are saying that and trying to do it you've got some teams that actually are the likes of brighton seem to have got it right you know, they hire the coach and the coach sticks with not only the, the playing staff, but also the backroom staff that exists there. And um, But the challenge you have is exactly right. You've got a, a new head coach coming in and they might say, oh, well, we're going to keep all our structures the same. But that head coach comes in and as part of his contract negotiation said, here are the 10 things I need, including I'm bringing 17 of my own staff in. And then those 17 staff bring in some extra people and they pick all the new players they want to bring. They last six months. And then the whole thing starts again. And like, I know there's been a lot of studies done on things like team cohesiveness, but I think it goes without saying that like you cannot build momentum if you're changing. I think Leeds are on their third, potentially fourth manager this season. Like it's impossible from a playing perspective. And as you said, like you end up with uh, a manager who hasn't actually bought or selected the players that are on his squad. Really problematic. And one of the things that we, one of the, the, the canvases we started off with when we sat down with this team and helped them select their manager is here is the pool of 28 players that we have we can probably make six changes this season but that's it so we need to find a manager that can work within this formation this playing style and based on the technical skills we have today and that really helped the transition of that particular manager into this role because he wasn't coming in saying oh actually you guys are 442 i need to play this you know, whatever funny formation I need to play. So we need to get five new players straight away. So I think um, the, at the end of the day, the first thing is make the right decision. The second thing is 
you got to back your decision then for a period of time. But I think it's easy for us to say the pressure is enormous, like the amount of money involved um, and then the impact of things like relegation and not achieving Champions League status for a team like Chelsea, for instance, the financial implications of that are so enormous. Mm. And so are you yourself going into like Premier League clubs and doing this kind of work? Yeah, so my, my career journey has been interesting when I came in uh, to the company as somewhat of a Swiss Army knife, a Swiss Army knife that felt a little bit lost, to be perfectly honest, because I'd spent the previous 10 years knowing exactly what good looked like. And I came into Kitman, there was only about 20 people in the company at the time, and everyone was asking me what I was doing. And I said, I'm not sure I'm figuring it out. And that was the honest answer. And um, because when Stephen and I, uh, my, my background is in finance. So I studied, uh, did a master's in financial services actually with Owen Redden. He and I did it together while we were playing rugby. And I was heading into some form of a finance job. And uh, Stephen picked up the phone to me and asked me to join Kitman. And I said, to do what? And he said, I'm not sure, but we'll figure it out. I want to hire you though. And that was my job interview. That was the only job interview I've ever done, actually. No, no word of a lie. So he and I probably spent the first couple of months actually building out my job spec together. Uh, one of the things he did say it was really important to him is he'd moved to the US and he wanted me to make sure that we had an Irish home and an Irish hub and that we built a high performance culture within that hub. Um, so from day one, that has been something that I've been focused on. Um, but I started off in sort of operations, uh, started getting into things like recruitment and building out the team in Ireland and in Europe. Uh, got very heavily involved in sales then um, and doing a lot of sales and helping build out our, our market share within the European region. Um, and then, like you said, in your introduction, moved into to customer success. So basically, from the minute the contract gets signed with a new customer, the customer became my problem. <laughs> and making sure that they're happy and we're delivering what we, what we had sold. Um, and actually, in the last six months, I've transitioned to a new role now where I'm a VP of people and operations. So I'm really owning uh, the culture, the operations of the business top to bottom, uh, which is a, a really big undertaking considering how big we've got in the last number of years. I'm really trying to be that gel that brings the different departments across the company together uh, with a view to, to achieving the outcomes we want to achieve. And what kind of things do you look for in when you're hiring people and when you're building out that team? Yeah, great question. Um, when I came into the business, I think we had probably gone with a skill first uh, approach and we ended up with people who weren't necessarily a fit. And I think part of the challenge we had is we didn't really have an identity or a culture. So it became really hard to understand, like, how can you decide what type of person you need if you don't know who you are as a business in the first place? Um, so I spent a lot of time then working with Stephen and other key senior stakeholders to define what is the type of company we want to be. And based on that, who are the type of people we want to hire? Built out, it's all the standard stuff, built out some values. Um, and then what I found was you hire a couple of good people, you get them involved in the hiring process, they hire more good people, and you start to build momentum around that. And then the culture... Uh, begins to the way I, I think about culture is it becomes like a current so when it's strong the current gets stronger and stronger and people who try and swim against the current ultimately uh, drown and leave the business you know it just doesn't work and the people that weren't a fit kind of moved on and moved out and more and more people came in contributed to our culture and the momentum built has built over time 
Um, it's been really exciting for me personally to watch that build. And one of the things I say to, to new starters when they come into the company, the, one of the first things I always try and say to them is, please don't sit back and watch. Please come in and make us better from day one. Uh, just because you're the new person doesn't mean you need to be the silent person. Uh, we hired you for a reason. Um, I will point out one of the, the learnings I've had, though, is people tend to hire people that are like themselves. So one of the things you need to be careful of is not building a, a set of clones. And one of the big focuses for me in my new role and over the last couple of years for us as a business is trying to build much more diversity uh, across the business. And we all, I think it's well well understood and known that like diverse teams with different uh, perspectives and different approaches ultimately allow you to achieve better uh, outcomes. Yeah, 100%. And that's cool what you say about new hires. And when I moved here to Christchurch, I was with um, chat with Shane Fletcher, the Crusaders manager, and he was just uh, giving me a spin over to Rugby Park and was saying that so a similar story. He was just saying that when he picked up George Bauer, a prop he he was playing i think itm cup and said something very similar he's like once he said to him that when you're a crusader now and that you're you're a part of this culture and it's like you said it's not about um waiting to earn your stripes or hanging back and and they're having a bed and in period of six months or a year it's like you're here now get involved and you know make us make us better in it like similar very very similar to what you're saying there yeah, and the big risk is that you you create a scenario where, and, and to be brutally honest, like this does exist in professional sport, I believe, where people do have to earn their stripes and in some cases are waiting years to even be heard or listened to within an environment. Um, and if I had my time back in rugby, I would have been way more confident way earlier and spoke up way earlier and I end up slowing my development down, I would say. So I've tried to take that lesson and I say to the junior people, I say to the new people, I say, guys, like we hired you because you're amazing. Come in and make us better. Do not sit back. Challenge things. You've got an opportunity to come in and see what we're doing wrong. You have a fresh perspective. We didn't hire you to sit down and be a mute. <laughs> so like that, I, I try and take some of the lessons I had from my early uh, rugby career where I was very low confidence and didn't necessarily have the no, I didn't necessarily have permission, to be perfectly honest, like within that culture to step up. I didn't feel like I had permission. Maybe I did. Didn't feel like I did. Certainly no one ever told me I had permission. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it's, um, yeah, like what you're saying, like like saying, saying it is important, like you saying it there and not feel like you in your role now, like feeling it should be understood. Like it's not understood. Like I know what you mean when you're a young lad, it's like, you you don't feel like that at all no no and it's easy it's easy having all the perspective in the world now to look back and say jesus like why didn't i challenge that why didn't i ask for that why didn't i push a bit harder but like that is also a part of everyone's journey it's and, and like i also remember guys like rob carney and luke Fitzgerald coming into leinster environment at 18 19 uh strutting in from day one in training and in games like running around like they own the pitch, speaking up in meetings, challenging people. And they had that confidence. And like that definitely, like they have immense talent regardless, but it definitely accelerated their journey. Um, and, but not everyone has that sort of inbuilt backing of their ability 
I think there's, there are probably more players like me that have a lot of reservations and need to build their confidence up over time. And I think, you know, I, I think from what Leo is doing now, and I'm, I'm still involved in the board in Leinster, Leinster is a much more open environment where players are asked to take ownership from a young age. And I think you see that with young guys coming through so early now. Um, mm. And there are a lot more people in the Rob and Luke category than there are in the in the category I was in where I was low confidence until till, till I pushed through my career a bit, a bit further. And when would you reckon around when do you, did you feel very confident in yourself and in where you were at? Probably not until I was maybe like 27, 28. As in, when I say I was playing for club, you know, UCD or Irish schools or like a level below professional with extreme confidence from whatever the age of 20 or when I left, whenever I left Gonzaga. Um, uh, but I think in terms of like stepping out in a Leinster jersey onto the field with my peers and like feeling um, very confident and having that like, I think there's all, there are always insecurities and doubts in every game and in every player. Any player who says they don't have insecurities or doubts is a liar. Like that's mm. just part of human nature. And I think not having them is actually dangerous. Um, so they're healthy. Like having some insecurities and doubts is healthy. But like I was stepping out in the field knowing I deserve to be here. I know exactly what I'm doing. I have complete the complete confidence of all my teammates, complete confidence of the coach, um, and complete confidence I'm going to play well. Like that, that was a journey. Like I didn't really start uh, getting my uh, position as a starting player for Leinster until I was 26, 27. And then there was probably a season of that um, before I, I went out and, and really had that level of confidence. Yeah, and what would you say to say yourself at like age 21, 2, 3, where you're getting, you know, games and you're starting to get through? Yeah, I mean, part of the challenge I had from a confidence perspective is I never got a run of games. And when I did get games, it tended to be with other guys that were at my stage. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get to, I didn't tend to get with the other top players. And I felt like anytime I played, we were either getting pumped or like, I I got the last 20 minutes and I just didn't get momentum week on week. Uh, but I also believe I spend a lot of time finding excuses for things. I spend a lot of time saying, oh, I'm injured or um, I'm not playing with the best players or, you know, we didn't get the right preparation for this game or the team we're playing are actually really good rather than actually demanding what I require to be successful in those games. So if I had my time back, I'd be a lot more selfish. And one of the things I've learned now in my, in my new career and at the end of my rugby career is being selfish is not not being a team player because the, the way I can be the best possible team player for you, Brian, is if I do my job incredibly well. Because if I do my job incredibly well, I'm going to make you look good. And the only way I can do my job incredibly well is by being selfish and take what I, taking what I need to be successful. So that might be uh, demanding an hour with a coach to go through something. Um, demanding something from your teammates in advance of the game. Guys, I need, uh, from, from your tight head, I need a right-hand shoulder if I'm going to be able to get off the base. Like, it's not acceptable for you to go backwards. 
Um, it might be a simple thing like demanding more time with the physio. Like my shoulder does not feel good. Like I have to play well this weekend. And I did not have the confidence to demand any of those things when I was in my early 20s. And I, when I look back on it, part of the reason was I didn't believe enough in myself or what I didn't even know what I needed, but also I didn't have the confidence to go and make those demands. And I thought that if I did, it would be seen as me being selfish. Um, and I actually know that if I'd done those things back then, people would have looked at me and said, wow, like he's a professional. He knows what he needs to be successful. He's demanding it. And then you go and deliver on that. People are like, okay, he knows what he needs. He's demanding it. And then he's delivering. And then you start to, you, you start to get um, credibility with your coaches and peers. Yeah. And 100%. And how did you find stepping up then into the Irish team? That was part of it later in your, around that time when you were saying 27, 28, when you were kind of hitting your stripes. Yeah. yeah, it was brilliant. Like, I loved it. I loved going to the camp. I loved getting to, to play with some, some of the guys I've been playing against in the other provinces and getting to know them. Um, it's very different, like, going from Declan Kidney then to Joe Schmidt, then to Les Kiss. Like, so I saw a few different kind of uh, incumbents while I was there. And uh, I learned an awful lot in, in my time in Irish camp. I'd say, like, never got any momentum again. So, like, uh, the vast majority of camps I was going into, I was going in as, like, a, either a, a non-squad player and a bag holder. Um, and then I got a few opportunities, which were amazing. But um, probably the biggest disappointment in my career was not getting picked for the 2011 World Cup because I felt like I was at the peak of my powers, let's say. My body felt unbelievable. I just played 30 odd games in that season for Leinster. Um, and I was ready. I, I felt I deserved to be going on that plane and end up missing out on a couple of tight calls. Um, and, and I would have to say, I don't have many regrets about my rugby career, but that was one of them because I would have loved to have gone on that World Cup. But um, it is what it is. And like, it's so hard and so competitive, particularly in the back. Um, Yes, it's the hardest position in Ireland, the back row. It always, always, always seems to be it. No matter who retires, then it's like still there's three deep in every position. Yeah, yeah, there really is. But it's, uh, that's just the way it is. I think it's even more competitive now than, than when I finished playing. So Obviously, injuries for everyone are challenging. But how did you find that side of it, like managing, you know, playing, getting injured, playing, getting injured? Oh, so hard. Probably the hardest thing in my career, to be honest, because I <laughs> the, the, the physios used to call me the mummy, like because I go in before every game, just basically both shoulders strapped, both thumbs, one of my wrists, my elbow, my but one of my knees, my both my ankles, and like I got to that stage in my career, and I think most rugby players probably say this, where I was like never fully fit going into a game. Um, which was frustrating. And then what I would describe it as is like every day now I can go into work and do my job and I can focus on things. There are lots of things I, can, I am in control of. When it came to injuries, it's like you just want to do your job and you want to do it well and you want to build momentum. And the frustration when an injury comes is hard to describe. And I think only athletes will really understand what that frustration means. Um, and there are a number of different factors to it. One is like you can't play and you're letting someone else play. 
that's obviously hard and you have to go along to the game and you're supporting your teammates and you're being a good teammate, but it's hard sitting in the stand. You can see Johnny Sexton's face at the moment. He's been a great teammate, but you can tell he's struggling. He wants to be on the field, right? The second thing is like training is what you do and you miss out on all the endorphins that come from training and the mental health effect of that. Um, the third thing is like gen- genuinely like boredom and like not having a purpose and something and meaning and things to do and things to, to drive toward and targets to achieve. Um, and that's where the study became really important for me. Uh, and probably from about 23, 24, I finished my under, I finished my undergrad when I was 22 and from had two years without studying. And then from 24 onwards, I, I always had something going from a study perspective because it didn't matter if I was injured or not, I could have some purpose and focus outside of rugby, which was really important for me. Um, and gave me meaning, gave me focus, uh, regardless of whether I was playing or not. Mm. And uh, yeah, one of the things you mentioned there, being on the sideline and watching others play, it's one of one of the hardest things because you know, or when you're made aware that you have to be a good teammate, but it's still, when you're competitive, it's still very difficult to you know, see other people playing and to be there and on the sideline. Yeah, 100%. And again, I know having spent lots of time on the sideline over my 10 years career, career that injury, injuries, lack of form, not getting picked or whatever, it's, it's honestly very, very mentally challenging. Like sitting there and watching your teammates either fighting a hard battle and losing and you not being able to help them or having the glory and you not being on the pitch. And no matter what you say, if you're not in the field and you're not actually like rolling with the punches and doing the hard work and the way in which the rugby mentality is like, you don't enjoy the outcomes as much. And that's just a fact of life. So I think that, that, that was certainly something that I struggle with. And I think all, to be brutally honest, all professional athletes would struggle with. And how's your body now? Uh, my body is actually pretty good. Um, I manage it really carefully. So I had about seven or eight operations on my left knee. So that's something that just needs to be carefully managed. And then as a relation, uh, as, as a result, my left hip struggles a bit and flares up from time to time. And then, you know, as you know, probably from playing my back, then tightens up and then my neck it's all mm. the whole chain is linked so i manage myself uh, stay fit and um, the first couple of years after i retired from rugby i didn't really do any sport whatsoever i went to the gym just to stay fit but in the last year or so i've started getting into paddle actually uh, i don't know whether you've heard of paddle yeah. it's a mix between squash and tennis uh, a lot of my friends are playing it and it's not it's easy enough on the joints small court and it's great fun and i love getting back into something competitive so that's been that's been a nice journey for me cool is that i've seen the actual paddle is that like a small small outdoor tennis court yeah with walls oh oh right oh yeah i've seen i've seen so there's pickle there's pickle which doesn't have walls and that's the u.s version and there's paddle which is like it's a southern more southern european sport and it has the walls like squash, um, 
but it has a more similar has a has a national that kind of stuff so it's mixed between squash and tennis i would say nice and was it concussion that you had to retire from ultimately yeah it was ultimately it was concussion i was um so i planned to retire and then leo had just taken over as head coach from matt o'connor and it was a world cup year and leo asked me to stay on for for a year to be brutally honest with you brian like my hip and my knee and my shoulder like no nothing was good at that point and i said to leo i'll I'll manage through for a few months um and when i say manage through i mean lots of treatment and demanding exactly what i needed at that point i had the confidence at that stage Uh, lots of anti-inflammatories sort of just not as much training on the field in particular uh, as i probably should have been doing just to manage through but um i started having issues from a concussion perspective then and got to a point where i couldn't really take contact without having some form of um of symptoms and sat down with leo based on having a consultation with a neurosurgeon and the two of us agreed i should stop um which was was a very hard moment because i didn't get to actually support leo through his first year uh, in his management role which wasn't a, an easy year for him but it, it you know the, the type of person the type of man he is like he cared not first and foremost about me and my health and second about his career so the minute i talked to him about the chat out of the neurosurgeon was like love if you could hang around and support but like you're not playing anymore so <laughs> that made it really easy for me yeah and so what was the chat like with the neurosurgeon uh i mean it was as you would understand there's no exact science with concussion like they honestly yeah. just don't know they really don't and i think part of the challenge is it's so subjective your symptoms could and will be so different to mine and you're coming down to trying to decide what is a concussion like and there's the obvious ones where people get knocked out but then there's a concussive episodes that happen during games where you're relying on players descriptions and you don't really understand so i described to him what was happening um and based on doing an analysis and li- mostly based on listening to my description of what was happening he recommended that i stop playing and that that was how it went and like he was a experienced neurosurgeon i think there's no neurosurgeon in the world that will tell you there's an objective analysis of had to decide whether a player should start stop take a break mm. like as we all know we're we're trying to improve the systems but there's a lot, still a lot of guesswork involved yeah big time and how many would you reckon you've had during your career where it's like full on like not like knocked not out cold but just you know when you, you know you know what i mean i, I honestly don't know brian i really don't i've there was a few obvious ones like a way to Claremont where I got knocked out and I was out cold for 10 seconds that happened a couple of times in training and stuff but i mean the reality is there's no game you're playing where you're not getting some sort of knock in the head yeah. like there's no back row in the world that's going into a game and and like again this is where the subjectivity comes in it's like i was obviously quite sensitive to it maybe that was a good thing because my body protected me and then you got players that play for 15 years and never get a concussion but are still getting the same head knocks that the players who are getting cussed who's better off we honestly don't know like there are lots of so there are so many unknowns 
Um, yeah, hundred percent. And it's uh, it's interesting. I had like five, six, or whatever, like proper ones, and never any issue. And then one last year, or just over that, after that, then just had headaches for six months, eight months, like every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like you say, when it's when it gets bad, it's like ah, oh, just stop. It's like it takes out of your hands. It's a lot easier to to then. 100% and I think like the interesting thing is I never had any symptoms post-event so my symptoms were always related to what was actually happening when I took contact and there was one specific game away to Benetton where I got a really bad knock and from that moment onwards anytime I hit into a bag or tackled someone I just felt something it's hard to describe what it was um, but my symptoms would disappear then so I've been very lucky, but I did. I knew I was in trouble. I was on summer holidays and was heading a ball in the pool, and I started to feel a bit faint. And I said, "Okay, that's that. That's not a good sign." Yeah. And how do you feel now? Like the the body's good. How's how do you feel now with the head? Years later. Yeah, fantastic. No issues whatsoever. No symptoms. Um, you can ask my colleagues, but I think my work performance is okay. And. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, blessed, really blessed in terms of how my body, how my head, all that kind of stuff is. So, yeah, good stuff, good stuff. And yeah, because I don't know, last thing on this, but um, you know, I was chatting to another person doing research here in in New Zealand on it, and he, I was just, he asked me to have a conversation with him for his research, and he was, I was chatting to him about how you know the different things you hear in the media, and he was saying, yeah, like the media sensationalizes everything in life. And you hear of the few uh, bad cases or whatever. But then I was just thinking, you know, you, you hear of, uh, I was just actually clicked into Ric Flair on the Joe Rogan uh, podcast for 10 minutes. And like, Ric Flair is 74 and he was like chatting away and he's living life. And it's like, you hear these people who like the stuff he would have went through for 30, 40 years, 50 years, he was still going in yeah. the 60s. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. and he's there chatting away and, and full of life and energy in his mid 70s. So it's, uh, it's yeah who you kind of who knows very subjective that's that's for sure yeah and what would you going back to say sport or Cape Labs what from your experiences in the kind of Premier League or in other sports what's something say maybe that soccer Premier League that they that you saw them do really well or seen them do well that rugby could do good question um I know a lot of the, the Premier League teams now are trying to put a big emphasis on preparing the players for life after rugby. And it, it's very different in the Leinster Academy system. Out of 20 players in the academy, you might have, Jesus, you might have 15 that are going to become professional players for a period of time. You you take, you look at a Premier League Academy and it's it's flipped the opposite way. It's probably like if you've got 113 year olds or 10 year olds or 11 year olds, it's probably only going to be five of them, maybe 10 of them that are going to become professionals. So they're putting more emphasis on making sure that they help not just build footballers, but build human beings. And that's been more and more of an emphasis I've seen. And one of the programs I've been working on in my, my position as a board member within the Leinster environment is helping build a, like a, a life after rugby program within the environment 
um, everything from hiring a full-time person uh, in line with Rugby Players Ireland, uh, a shared employee who's full-time based in the Leinster environment to, to help players plan for what they're doing now so that they're set up for life after rugby all the way through to we're now looking at building out like a past players a more formalized past players network and alumni because i would have really benefited when i left the Leinster environment in having a couple of players talk to me about the journey of going from playing to work um and i think i could be a benefit to other players that are now leaving and worried and all that kind of stuff um, and I also think we have a pretty phenomenal network within the Dublin and across the globe, to be honest. Um, and we don't necessarily tap into that network. And that network could really help smooth the journey for players uh, from rugby through through to the next step. So I would say that rugby in general could do a better job. There have been some leading lights like Saracens have invested an awful lot of time, resource and people into that. And you've seen some of the great success stories that have come out of, of that environment. And Leinster and, and Leo were 100% committed to, to, to kind of modeling that and, and going to the next level and, and being a standard bearer, not just on the pitch, but off the pitch. Yeah, class, because it feeds into other things in that it makes a club more attractive. Like if if you're trying to bring players there, and I've, I've heard that with Saracens and, you know, they got into trouble with the salary cap, obviously, but they were, you know, helping them set up businesses and <clears throat> yeah, some of it was in breach or whatever, but but there was they were doing that kind of stuff they were helping the players it wasn't just to you know put money into a company that didn't exist and whatever whatever and there there is that set the concept's there. amazing i love yeah. that concept yeah where where you've got smart driven young men who are are amazing at what they do but also trying to like forge a path outside of rugby they've also got big brands and you've got people who have money and why not connect the two and help them, you know, see if you can create a, a marriage that works for everyone. And I think that's, as you said, putting the financial breaches aside, the concept was amazing. And I, I think is something that could and can be replicated in, in other environments. Absolutely. And with how long have you been on the board at Leinster and how did you get involved in that? Uh I joined the board of Leinster, I think 2017, so a couple of years after I retired. And again, uh, Leo approached me and said that they were looking for, the board was made up of, of people who'd been out of the game quite a long time. And they were looking for a player who was more connected to the modern game and also um, just like, to be quite frank, from Leo's perspective, someone who would support him and understood him and understood what he was trying to build. Um, and then the chairman at the time, Frank Salmon, approached me as well. So I got approached by a couple of, a couple of those guys um, and I was delighted. It's, it's a way for me to stay connected to the club in the background, to know what's happening, but most importantly, to support Leo in his journey and what he's been building. Um, so it's been an amazing way for me to stay connected to the club in, in quite a hands-off way. Um, but then also to focus on an initiative that's close to my heart around uh, supporting players in their transition uh, from the game. Because when you're in it, you think it's the only thing that exists. And then when you leave, you quite quickly learn that it's not that important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to say that to any, I'm not yeah. gonna say that to any of my former teammates who are playing in the game this weekend. But like that's that's what's great about it. But it's also in some ways what's terrible about it. 
because when you're in it, you think it's the only thing that matters. And it's very easy to get in this vacuum of I'm a rugby player that defines me. If I win, I'm happy. If I lose, I'm terrible. And I think part of my challenge then was I transferred that to work. And it took me a while to learn that, like, at the end of the day, you're not Kevin, the rugby player. You're you're Kevin who plays rugby or used to play rugby and now has a job. And, like, I think that is a really important uh, journey or lesson that all players need to go through, to be perfectly honest. Oh, 100%. Brilliant points. Oh, it's so, so true. And, um, yeah, it's so funny. Like you say, when you stop playing, you realise it's just a game. But when you are playing, it's like it's oh, it's yeah. life it's your whole life yeah and that's what makes it so good like the guys are gonna, yeah. they will do anything on saturday in this game like the the commitment and that's what makes it so entertaining and it's also part of what makes them the players so good and anything they put their mind to so i think it's almost trying to extract those traits around discipline and work rate and ownership and all those kind of things that come from the obsession but extract them from um attaching yourself to the outcomes all the time i think that's the really hard part because obviously you're either winning or losing and if they lose this weekend there'll be devastation like they really will um and there's no avoiding that but i think it's it's impossible to not tie yourself up in um confidence linked outcomes in some way shape or form but i think if i had my time back i would have extracted um, and tried to decouple those things a little bit at least mm. and uh like what you, you said there in that rugby or it's just so it's not who you are but it's something just something you do that that idea like you know it's i did certainly didn't get it when i was younger but it's so important and it makes it a lot easier then as well what once you click once that clicks with you you start to realize it the actual rugby becomes easier too yeah one of the things that helped me is my my sisters or two sisters and then my wife a little bit later in life and um, none of them really cared about rugby <laughs> and it's not that they didn't care about me but they were the only thing they cared about was how I was, how I was feeling. Was I injured? Was I hurt? Was I upset? Was I happy? And they, they just, you know, I found it really refreshing. I'd be like, I'd be on my way to like a semi-final behind cup against Toulouse. And my wife Kate would be like, Oh, who are you playing? What's the game? Where's it on? Like, yeah. And it's, I, in some ways I love that because she just really, it doesn't, it didn't matter. I was like, Jesus, like if she, okay, she really wants to support me and she's doing everything she can to support me, but, like, it's not that important. It's, like, just hearing a different perspective on it, I found really refreshing and actually I found took a lot of the pressure off because anyone else I talked to within my circle was like, oh, Toulouse, bro, huge game. How are you feeling? How's the team doing? How's your body? How are you going to play? Are you going to win? Um, and that, for me, and this is my issue, not theirs, would I feel pressure pressure would build pressure would build pressure would build um and you end up putting more and more pressure on yourself because you're the expectations of other people yeah when you're in that echo chamber and how did you deal with pressure going into those kind of big games um i used to focus an awful lot on preparation 
um, just simple things and sticking to my routine. And you hear it's, it's pretty standard, I think, for athletes, but it used to find it really useful for me as I go through my routine, I do all the things that I know I need to do. And then I'd sit down on Friday evening before a game on Saturday and I'd just be like, I'm ready. I feel good then. And then I'd stick to my routine on the game day. Um, and I used to do a good bit of work with Enda McNulty and he really helped me with these things, but get a couple of triggers in the warm up. So make a couple of big hits, make a couple of carries in the warm up. Because what I used to find was I've, if I did something good in the first five minutes, it greatly increased my chances of playing well in the game. Mm. So Enda's point was okay, so why don't you just do that? good thing in the warm-up instead and set the trigger there instead of waiting for it to happen in a game because you could be waiting 20 minutes to get a chance in a game. I was like, oh, that's a great point. Those simple things like that used to make a difference um, and things I learned a little bit later in my career increased the likelihood that I'd play at the level I wanted to play at. Yeah, that's brilliant. And any other things that advice you give to say your 20-year-old self that's in the academy or pushing through into the first team? Um, trying to think. So I, I talked about the deciding what you need to be to be successful and then demanding. Um, I do think part of that is at 20, you might know. So you might know what you need to be successful. So use the expertise that's available to you. So sit down with the SNC coach and ask the SNC coach where your weaknesses are, where they think you need to improve. Talk to the coaches. Say to the coach, what, what's it going to take for me to get picked? Like where am I? Like I'm looking at, at the time it was for me, I'm looking at Rocky Elsom and all the things that he's doing. Um, so like you need a strong ball carrying six, you need line out, you need tag, whatever it might be. And like really understand from the coach, what are the things that they're looking for in the position that you want to play? And then ask them and talk to them about the plan or how you're going to get to that level. Because <clears throat> I think at the end of the day, getting feedback is hard. And when you're 20 years old and you're insecure and you're lacking a bit of confidence, it takes uh, it takes courage to ask for feedback, but I think the respect you get from the coaches and the expertise you can glean for asking for that feedback can really accelerate your career. Yeah, hundred percent. That's brilliant, and yeah, it's a growth mindset and what well, yeah, wanting to be better. And it's like you say, it is challenging. It's always at any. I think at any age in life it's still challenging getting feedback because you're essentially saying what am I bad at and they tell you what you're bad at and you're like oh god I'm bad you know yeah and it like if they have it you'd like to think that any coach will know how to give feedback and sure. will deliver some sort of a feedback sandwich where you'll be getting sure. po positives and work-ons uh but yeah like to be honest particularly some of the coaches I had early in my career were pretty brutal like <laughs> mate you're terrible at this 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 come back to me when you've improved them so i think uh i actually think the world has come a long way and even the rugby environment has come a long way in in the last 15 years where you sit down with a coach now and you will genuinely get a proper empathetic approach from the vast majority of professional clubs across the world now around 
here's where you're at. Here's what you need to improve. Here are the here's the setup on how I'm going to help you improve. So I certainly know that that exists within Lancer now, which is which is great. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, cheers for your time. And lastly, I'm just bouncing back to say Kitman Labs and the data. So like I've worked with teams and they have GPS and. I think like you say, um, it's like, what are we measuring? And there's all these different ideas and whatever. And then say university level or club level or, you know, lower than professional levels um, that this is going on. But what teams, you know, we're talking about Premier League, we're talking about Leinster, NFL. What teams do Kitman Labs work with outside of the top, top, top professional? Or Yeah, so we work with it's been really interesting because we obviously like we're targeting the the biggest leagues and the biggest teams but there's such a need across um all semi-professional all the way to the top around there's an understanding and a need from a data perspective to okay we've got all this available data how are we going to use it not just to drive better outcomes but even to look after our players a bit better and make sure that we're documenting what's happening um so for instance we've had a partnership with trinity college dublin now for the last three or four years um and that's been really interesting for us because they're trying to build uh they're trying to attract great great athletes from across the globe um, and within ireland and they believe in order to do that they need to build world-class infrastructure and they want software insights analysis to be part of that so we're working with them. We have a co-internship with them to help like flesh out their staff a bit, to help build out the different uh, infrastructure to enable the data collection and insights. And we're looking at research opportunities with them too. As you know, we, we work with BC Rugby, we work with Canada Rugby, so some of the smaller rugby nations. We work with the IRFU, obviously the number one team in the world. I enjoy saying that every time, particularly to someone who's sitting in New Zealand and yeah. you get the opportunity to rub it in regularly, I'd say. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, soccer is the biggest global market for us. So you've got Premier League teams, but we've also got six out of the 12 um, uh, Danish Super League teams, for instance. You know, Danish Super League would be whatever, 30th biggest league in the world. Um, a huge appetite for data and insights and driving better, using it to drive better outcomes within their environment too. Cool. And then the last one, but how do you... Um bring on what's the what has been your best way to bring on new clients um like with the growth that you've had um do you mean how do we sell yeah or like like how like like danish super league like how like how yeah how how does that happen like i guess i get you're in dublin i get it started there i get like going to the states and then but like you know growing into all these different yeah, areas. Uh, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, how do you sell? So we're a SaaS business, so software as a service. Um, we apply um, some of the core SaaS principles to how we operate, including our sales process, which is building up a pipeline by using marketing, uh, reaching out to, to different clubs, asking them what challenges they have, and seeing can we solve them. Um, and then we we run through our sales process. I think one of the key differentiators for us is we have a, a large group of what we call performance experts um, and very much a practitioner-led company. So we have people who've coached within the Premier League. We have people who've been sports science data scientists uh, within NBA teams. Um, we have someone who's 
won a World Cup with Germany as an SNC coach. You know, so we built this kind of stable of performance experts that bring huge credibility to our process. So if you're a head coach for a team, you're not just talking to a salesperson, you're talking to someone who's actually lived in, in their shoes, understands data and understands the challenges you're facing. And that's been a huge differentiator for us as a business. Cool. That's um that's class. Well, hey, um, congrats on you know, all the growth from like I say, 20 people when you joined up to over 200 as class. And yeah, best luck with everything going forward. And thanks Mel, for your time. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Cheers for listening in today. I hope today's podcast helped you on your journey. Be sure to check out the show notes in the description for a rundown of today's episodes and all the important links. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to be an absolute legend, please share it with a friend on social media or by text and let me know what you enjoyed about the episode over on our social media channels at Brian Moylet. I really love hearing your feedback and it helps us make the pod better. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts, you can leave up to a five-star review. If you're in sports or business and you want to get better results, you feel like you're capable of more, you want to be happier, more fulfilled, more successful in what you are doing, head over to my website now, offfieldrugby.com, and we'll set up a time to have a chat for free. You can get my new book now on Amazon and Audible, and the links are in the show notes. Thanks, Emil, for clicking in today. Have a brilliant rest of your day. Cheers.